Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome back, Mexico team. Hello to people who we haven't seen in a while um, or have never met before. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are reading through the book of Galatians. And so let me start off by reading our passage today. We're going to read a few verses. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, so if you have a Bible, if you want to bring out your, uh, bust out your phone, just kidding, it's already out, I know. Um, turn your phone to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, this is God's word. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, I pray that your word would powerfully reveal to us that you are our Savior who set us free. And I pray, Lord, we would understand deeply what it means to stand firm in the freedom that we have because of you. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would be freeing us from religious bondage. Um, I pray that you would be revealing your grace and the hope we have because of our faith in you, not in ourselves. Um, and that would bring us incredible joy and freedom uh, and a sense of your love and unconditional acceptance for us. Uh, so I pray, Father, your word would speak powerfully uh, and our lives would be changed by your grace. Um, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, uh, as I was reading this passage, uh, one of the first things I thought was, man, didn't you already say this? Is Paul just saying the same thing? Because we've talked about this before. Um, but as I was reflecting on it, uh, there is a Martin Luther quote that I really love. Martin Luther was the great Protestant reformer. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, this guy is fiery. This guy was made to be on Twitter because he is extremely controversial and he has a way with words. He will say things that will make the, um, I don't know, the roughest tumbling sailor like blush. You know, he, it's really funny. Like, uh, so he says this, uh, and this is in his commentary on the book of Galatians. Uh, he is talking about the gospel and justification by faith, which we've talked about. And he says, uh, let me see if I can remember it correctly. Um, Therefore, it is most necessary uh, to understand this article well and teach it to others and continually beat it into their heads. You hear that? <laughs> what is this article? It's the article of grace. Um, it's the article, the truth of justification by faith. Um, so now, why is it so important that we beat it into our heads? Because it is so hard for us to understand and believe. Because so few of, there, there's almost nothing in the world that operates on the same basis of grace through faith. 
Um, so let me start with uh, a story, so before we get into it. Uh, there was a guy who came over to our house to help with our landscaping irrigation. And this was like, he was a very like larger than life character. He was like, uh, he was very, um, what's a nice way to put it? Like, is this a nice way to put it? No, it's not, but whatever. He was very Santa Cruz-y. Um, so he, he kind of had like a big beard and he was like maybe in his 50s. Uh, and he, so he did kind of contract landscaping stuff. Uh, and when he came over, he was very, very jittery and hopped up on something. And he told me that he drank too much coffee and he was like, he was like shaking and twitching and he was talking really fast. And so he proceeded to do the whole landscaping job. He did a really good job. And then after the job was finished, uh, we started, we kind of struck up a conversation. And for some reason, this always happens to me. I don't know why. Uh, he proceeded to spend the next two hours telling me his life story. And I kid you not, this is not the only person that I've hired to come over to my house to help me <laughs> who finishes the job and then ends up telling me their life story. I don't know what it is. And it makes Ashley laugh sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't make her laugh because in this case, the whole time that I'm talking to him, Ashley's watching Toby and Toby was crying. And so I talked to him for two hours and then I came in and then I got in a fight with Ashley because she was mad at me because I didn't help her out with the baby. Um, but over the course of him telling me his life story, uh, he started to say something that I think really reflects well our uh, many people's view about Christianity. He was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist church, which is a specific, um, it, it's a specific, I mean, some call it a cult, but it's, it's a specific religious group uh, that, uh, that has certain beliefs that are in common with Christianity. And one thing that's extremely, um, one thing that's unique about this group, um, or actually, I should say one thing that is, they're known for, but is not really that unique, uh, is they're very, um, they really care about adhering to certain rules and laws. And so, you know, like Seventh-day Adventists, like uh, the Sabbath is a really big deal. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. Uh, you, have to, you have to show up on church. You have to dedicate the entire day. Can't do any work, all of the stuff. And they're very stickler for rules. Um, they want you to conform to external behaviors. And he started to tell me about this. And then, you know, I tell him I'm a pastor. And then people generally have different reactions when I tell them I'm a pastor. Some people are like, like they're confused. I mean, it's Silicon Valley, right? So they're like, what? I've never met one of you before. Like there's still people like you in the world. And, and, then, and, and then some people are like interested. Uh, but when he realized this, he's like kind of like a look came over him. And he started to tell me about how bitter and resentful and angry he was at Christianity and Jesus and God because he was raised in a church um, where uh, your relationship to God was entirely characterized by restrictiveness, control, guilt tripping, um, and the way that he would, the, the way that his face just changed. Um, he was like visibly shaking as he was remembering these kind of hard, difficult memories with God. And so when many of us think about Christianity, we have in our minds something like that. So, you know, you kids in youth group, you might think that Christianity is exactly the way that he was talking, where it's restrictive, you're supposed to do these certain external behaviors, whatever it might be. But in this passage, Paul says something that's extremely strange to us. Um, he says, 
for freedom, Christ has set us free. And so, for, for those of you who, uh, I mean, like, what's the first thought that comes to your mind when you think about Christianity? It's definitely not the word freedom, right? Like, how many of you think about freedom when you come to Christianity? Very few of us. But in this passage, Paul is saying, the whole reason why I wrote this book was to save people, like my irrigation specialist, from experiencing bondage when it comes to religion. And he says, why did Christ come to this world? To set us free. And then he says, what is the most important thing we can do if you're a believer? Stand firm in the freedom. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so this statement that he's making is his thesis statement, where he is saying, if, why did Christ come to this world? So we could be free. Who freed us? It was Jesus. Um, because many of us think, oh yeah, Jesus forgives you of your sins, gives you a ticket to heaven, whatever it might be. But then after Jesus saves you, you got to get down to it, you got to follow the rules, you got to do hard work for God, right? But Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in the, sl- in the freedom, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So let me talk a little bit about the yoke of slavery. Um, uh, in, chap- in verse 2, Paul says, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Um, and what I would say briefly is, uh, before I get into the points, is what, what's so counterintuitive uh, is Paul says to stand firm in your freedom means not submitting to religious principles and rules. This is really, really bizarre. And I don't know if you even realize what I'm saying here. This is very, very groundbreaking. And again, Martin Luther, the entire Protestant Reformation was based on the grounds of him saying many of the religious rules and regulations that churches do actually will bring people back into slavery. And Christ set us free. And so what I want, this is, this is kind of a shocking, this might be hard for you to wrap your minds around. It's hard for me to wrap my minds around. So let me just get into the points. What we're going to see here is Paul is going to support his thesis. His thesis is that When you become Christian, you are set free from bondage and slavery. And what he's going to say is, one of our tendencies is, within any religious institution, is actually to go back into slavery by forcing people, by pressuring people to conform to moral or religious standards or practices. And so Paul is saying, this is so important for us. We want to experience and stand firm in our freedom. And so I got three points. First, we're going to see from uh, these verses what we stand to lose if we accept circumcision. I'll explain what that means. So what we stand to lose, we're going to see how we can kind of know if we've lost it. And then finally, we're going to see what freedom is. Okay? So what we stand to lose, how we know if we lost it, uh, what freedom is. So, let's get into it. Um, Look, Paul, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage of you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, 
He is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified from the law. You have fallen from grace. Uh, so in these th- uh, couple of verses, Paul is saying, Paul is actually uh, making sort of a list. He's saying, if you accept circumcision, here are the implications. These are the outcomes that happen when you accept circumcision. So right off the bat, what is circumcision? Let's get really uncomfortable and awkward, will we? Are you, did you expect this? Did you expect this coming to church today? Um, so circumcision was basically a surgery that you would do on men's private parts and yeah, 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 uncomfortable, right? Everyone's uncomfortable. I'm just as uncomfortable. Um, and what was happening was this was a mark of the covenant with God. And so Jewish people, for all Jewish males, this would have been extremely important. And this would have been kind of like your membership card. This would have been something that admitted you into, it, it, shows, it shows that you are a Jew. And so in this, circum, uh, in this circumstance, <laughs> In this circumstance, uh, the Galatian, uh, Galatian church was pre- predominantly comprised of pagans, which means people who are not ethnically or religiously Jewish. And what these teachers were doing were they were saying, faith in Christ is great. Like, you're saved by your faith in Christ, but you have to add something to it to kind of uh, com- uh, finish the deal, which is you have to adopt this practice of circumcision. And so Paul says, if you accept this practice, you actually lose everything and you fall back into slavery. And so uh, let's, let, me, let me start off by saying, um, when we come to accepting circumcision, I don't think we realize what you get from being circumcised. Like, what was the point? What did they feel like they were accomplishing or gaining when they were circumcised? And the first thing I would say is what they gained was a sense, like basically a badge of honor, where if you, this is like, um, this is like within a religious group, the person who is the most committed, they're typically held up as an example for everyone else, right? Like, oh, look at how much money this person gave away. Or, oh my gosh, this person became a missionary to whatever, and you know, like they're, like, I don't know, the jungles of uh, Malaysia or Indonesia, whatever it is. And look at how committed they are, right? And so what's really interesting is one of the reasons why these people would have wanted to be circumcised, it would have been based on the teaching of the false teachers, but also they were getting something, which is they could say to other people, look how committed I am. If you're a guy and you are willing to have surgery in that area when you are a fully grown adult, and this was before anesthesia, or I don't know, I don't know what anesthesiologists did back then, but it was not as advanced as it is now, you are showing how committed you are, right? And so this is really interesting. You have something to boast in when you stand before God and other people, and you say, look at how committed I am. The other thing you get from this is you get a sense of solidarity with the other people who also are as committed as you. So these are some of the things you gain. And this is part of the motivation behind why people want to follow these system of rules. You get a sense of self-righteousness where you can say, look at how committed I am. Look at how much I serve the church. And then within the most committed group of people, sometimes there's like the Navy SEALs of the church where they're like, oh my gosh, look at how much I serve. Like we were really intense and like look at this you know, crazy stuff we've done for God. 
there really is a feeling and a sense of solidarity and you have something that you can boast in and hold up and say, look at how Christian I am. Look at how religious I am. And so this is really weird. When Paul is saying, if you accept circumcision, what I'm saying is we can apply this to things, practices that we would see as really good and admirable. For example, uh, your Bible knowledge. You can hold up your Bible knowledge in front of everyone else and say, look how great I am. I can boast, I can take pride in my Bible knowledge. Um, but what are the impact, what's the impact of that? So this is where it's really tricky. It's like kind of a bait and switch. If you accept this, if you accept commitment as something to boast in, Christ will be no advantage to you. So what is he saying here? He's saying, if you think that you're saved by your commitment to God and what you do, how well, how hard you work for him, you don't care about Christ at all. Christ doesn't do anything for you. Why? Because you don't boast in Christ. You boast in yourself. You boast in what you do for God. And so Paul is saying, this is so incredible, because he's saying, it is possible that we believed in Christ, Christ set us free, and then out of our desire to be committed to God, it can actually bring us back into slavery. Because we start to boast in ourselves. And this is, this is really, really crazy. But let's keep going. He keeps going. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. What's going on here? Um, he says, if you accept circumcision, this way of relating to God through a set of practices, rules, laws, even Bible principles, you're obligated to keep the whole law. So there are two ways of saving yourself, he's saying. One person saves themselves by how well they keep the law and, and do Christian practices and whatever. Follow what's in the Bible. The other person does not save themselves. The other person is saved on the basis of Jesus Christ doing it, right? You can be saved by your own efforts or you can be saved not by anything you do, but by what Jesus has done. And so if you accept circumcision, Jesus doesn't do anything for you because it's all about your commitment. Um, if you accept circumcision, not only this, you are going into the realm of law keeping and he's saying, there, uh, basically, if you want to relate to God in this way, then you have to keep the whole law. Every single bit of the law, you have to keep that to be saved. And earlier on in chapter, uh, in chapter three, uh, he quotes a passage in Leviticus where it says, uh, where is it? The one who does the law shall live by them. He quotes it. So it basically says this. In, in Leviticus, it's saying, the, the law says, if you are able to perfectly follow every jot and tittle of the, of the Old Testament, of the rules, of the laws, then you can live by them. If that's the game you want to play, you can live by them. But what's really interesting is that means you are re relying completely on your own effort and Christ is no advantage. Christ doesn't benefit you at all because it's all about what you do. Let's keep going. Um, not only does this uh, lead you to keep the whole law, but this also severs you from Christ. Um, and so there are basically relational components to this. So let me, let me, let me pause for a second and illustrate uh, what's going on here. What does it feel like to accept circumcision and be obligated to keep the whole law? Um, there's a movie that I love called Despicable Me. 
So this, I, okay, just a quick show of hands. How many of you have seen Despicable Me? I'm, I'm, I, I like to gauge how like dated my illustrations are. It's, it, this one is actually, it feels new to me, but to you it probably feels like an old movie. Like I saw that one, like 10 years ago or whatever. Um, in Despicable Me is actually, the first one is actually a quite profound statement about relationships, um, about dysfunction in families, um, and about conditional love. And so uh, what's really interesting to me is Despicable Me in a few short scenes actually captures really well what it feels like to be under the law and to relate to God according to the law. So let me give you two examples. Um, if, you, if you accept circumcision and you want to relate to God on these terms, uh, then this is a way that you can know you're doing it. Uh, the main character, Gru, is a supervillain, and he lies so he can adopt three young orphan girls so they can help him steal a shrink gun from Vector, who's like some kind of reclusive tech billionaire villain. And so he needs these orphans to steal the weapon from him, and so he adopts them, right? Now, uh, he adopts them to steal the shrink ray so he can shrink the moon and hold it hostage and make the world, uh, yeah, hold it hostage, tiny little moon in his hands, and he's like, oh, you want the moon back? UN, you know, United Nations, you gotta pay me whatever, $500 billion or whatever. That's his plan, right? And so as the movie unfolds, you start to realize he's not just doing it to be evil. And so there's a scene, a flashback with his mom, and his entire motivation is explained in these little flashbacks. So he's, here's young Gru, and he's talking to his mom, and he says, Mom, one day I'm going to go to the moon. And then his mom says, um, I'm afraid that NASA's not sending the monkeys anymore. <laughs> yeah, you get it? You get it? Um, call him a monkey? Yeah. And then he goes on to say, but he is, he is set on going to the moon. It's his dream as a kid. And so there's cute little Gru, and he has like, you know, a big pointy nose, and he's like, like skinny legs, big body. Um, and he's like looking up at his mom, and he says, look, mom, I drew a picture of me landing on the moon. Great picture. Um, he's like two years old, and he's drawing a great picture. She looks at it, and you know what she does? Eh. And then the next part is, Look, Mom, I built, I built a macaroni prototype of the rocket ship I'm going to use to go to the moon. She looks at it, eh. And then finally, he builds a real prototype rocket with a button. He presses the button, and it takes off into space. And he's like 10 years old or whatever. She's like, pauses, eh. Now, this is extraordinarily tragic but you can see the dynamic that's in play here. Gru is dictated, he is compelled by his desire to please his mom or to make her say, I'm proud of you. And so everything he does is based on that motivation. And so he has to make a big splash. He has to steal the moon so that finally she'll, she'll say, you did something important and significant. And she might even say, like, how could you do that? That's so wrong and like, why are you doing that? But you know what? That's better than her saying, eh. Isn't it? At least he did something important. This is actually a picture of what it looks like to be in slavery, where you want to do things for God, but everything you try to do for God, he looks at you and says, eh. 
And so this is really interesting. What, what Paul is saying is many of us relate to God on these terms where we think the law, circumcision, our commitment to church, Bible reading, prayer, all of these good things are the measure by which God approves or disapproves, the measure by which he loves or doesn't love us. And then often we feel like we try so hard to do so many things for God, but it's never enough. And so we're driven by this compulsion to do more and more for God, and we do everything, we give up everything, and then we burn out. And we're resentful and bitter because we feel like we still haven't done enough for God. Do any of you know what this is like? This is for the people who are most religiously committed. These are for the people who have do the most and serve the most at church. This is a way that we can view God where we constantly have these principles. You have to do more for God. You have to serve in church. Do you know what Christ says? You are absolutely free. God is not pressuring you to accomplish more for him. And so, I, I mean, I can just like work out the implications of this. You don't have to serve in church if you're a Christian. You are free not to serve in church because Christ saved you and has set you free from that. Do we want you to? Yeah, that would be great if you're serving for the right reasons, and we'll get on to that. But let's keep going. Another illustration from Despicable Me. Um, so Gru relates to his mom on the basis of, of wanting to win her approval and always falling short. Uh, the three orphans live at Miss Hattie's home for girls, right? And so Miss Hattie is this like really jovial, uh, chubby like lady. She's, she has a big smile, she's all made up, she looks all put together. Um, so they come in and they've been trying to sell Girl Scout cookies to her um, to like raise money for the orphanage or whatever. And they say, oh yeah, we sold like 70 Nutter Butters and we sold like 100 you know, chocolate chip cookies, whatever, whatever. And then she turns to them and she says, you're acting like those are good numbers, girls. And then she acts really like, you better do better or else you're gonna go in the box of shame. She literally says that. And then as they're walking out, you see like this cardboard box with like prison bars labeled box of shame and there's a little girl in the box of shame and they say, hi Penny. And then the girl in the, in the prison bar says, hi guys. And then they leave. What's going on here? This is the slavery of accepting circumcision. This is the way we operate with God, where we need to perform, and if we don't, the, the manipulative, there's emotional manipulation, there's spiritual harm. This is why my irrigation friend acted the way he did around me, because religious people motivated him using the tactics of fear of punishment and shaming. Now, th this is very um, sobering, because if you're anything like me, like especially, <laughs> I mean, if you work with the youth group, if you work with kids, if you're a parent, um, but even just, this is a way that humans relate to each other all the time. This is how parents get their kids to do what they want. Oh, if you do good, I'll give you a snack. If you do bad, you can't watch that TV show you love, right? And what, what's happening here is you're actually communicating a view of God where God's love is absolutely conditional on, in this case, how useful you are to him, how well you're able to sell cookies for God. And so we have markers like, oh yeah, did you share the gospel with this many people? Do you, whatever, whatever it is, I don't care what it is. And so this is a recipe for losing your freedom, 
where you relate to him based on fear of punishment. And we are actually free from this. This is what Paul is saying. If you accept circumcision, if you accept commitment, um, if you relate to God uh, with this box of shame, this is not it. This is not the freedom Christ has set you free from. What else? You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. This, this one gets really crazy. Um, so this one, uh, this one is, uh, okay, let me, let, me, let me try to parse uh, one example of this. Sorry, I'm just thinking how I want to do this. Let me think for a second. Okay, I'll, I'll, use, I'll use this illustration. When he says, you are severed from Christ, um, he's using intentionally provocative language, and he's saying, if you cut off that part, you think you're doing something good for God, but what you're actually doing is cutting yourself off from Christ, right? You are severed from Christ. Uh, what's going on here? You who would be justified by the law? Again, it's like previously where he says, Christ is of no advantage of you, uh, Christ is of no advantage to you, um, what you're doing by turning back to these principles is you're saying, I don't need Christ. How does this work in practice? So um, this is relating to God through the law rather than being connected to God personally and vitally. And so the phrase, I, we talked about this in Bible study, the phrase I would use for this is this is a type of religion that relates to God through principles, but it is not personal. You relate to God by principles, but it's not personal. And so uh, here's an illustration. Um, let's pretend for a second I want to be a better husband. And so my wife is a software engineer, and she's good at technical writing. And so, you know, we just got married. Um, I am very confused about how to relate to my wife. Um, I don't know what it means to be a husband. So I come to her one day, and I say, you know what? You know what would be really helpful for me? I want you to write an instruction manual. I want you to imagine every possible scenario I might run into as a husband, and I want you to give me a step-by-step step -step instructions on how to please you and love you, okay? So, if you wake up and you're feeling sick, what do I do? Number one, warm up chicken soup. Number two, make a cup of hot tea. Number three, in conversations with Ashley, she asked me a question. I turned to page 742, paragraph D, and it says, if she says this, then you respond, oh, you look great today, or whatever it might be. Um, an instruction manual, wouldn't this be awesome? Wouldn't this be amazing? Now, this is the way, what, what's really interesting is, if I were to have this instruction manual, what would actually happen? Ashley would ask me a question, and I'd be like, hold up. Pull it out, look for the answer, and then say, oh, Ashley, um, I would love to wash the dishes for you. You know, or like, you know, or even like, um, like what, uh, how, do I make, how do I make conversation at dinner? Um, Ashley, uh, how was your day at work today? Did any of your coworkers irritate you? And then she says, yeah, they did. And I was like, oh, I am so sorry. I, I feel so bad. I, I, am, I not only sympathize, but I empathize with you, right? Now, how would that feel for her? Am I actually relating to her as a person? Absolutely not. I'm relating to her through principles or instructions. And what's really crazy is, because I have this instruction manual, I don't even have to talk to her. I, I really don't. I know exactly what to do. 
This is what we do with God, where we are principled, but we're not personal. This is how we use the law, where all you need to know is the right way of operating, the right things to think, the right values to have, the right practices, and we never talk to God personally. But this was never the intention of the law. All throughout scripture, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden and they related to him as a person. They had a conversational relationship. They ask him how, like they ask him things. He responds to them. They pray to him, they listen to him. And this give and take is the heart of a relationship. But Paul is saying, if you relate to God in terms of these laws and restrictions and rules, even if they're biblical principles, what happens is you never talk to him because you already know what to do. You already know what you're supposed to do as a Christian. There's no need for Christ. All you have to do is execute the instruction manual he has given you. But this is nowhere in scripture. And what Paul says is, what, how did the law function? The law gives us knowledge of sin, the law points us to Jesus. The law makes us recognize our need for a savior. And then when we relate to Jesus, we don't relate to him through the instruction manual, which was a guardian, which was a way to uh, restrain evil. We don't relate to him that way anymore. We relate to him on personal terms, where we are free. We are free. He has freed us, and we can know him personally. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Uh, let me give a few examples. Um, so what does this look like in churches? Um, and again, I'm making huge, broad generalizations, uh, but this is what it could look like. I, and, I, and again, I will give personal examples from my life. Um, this could look like being pragmatic, but prayerless. When it comes to fulfilling God's vision, his mission, Make disciples. You strategize, you do effort, you find the right tactics, you consult the instruction manual, the church planner instruction manual, you execute, you act. But do you know what you're doing? <laughs> you're not praying. You're relying on your own effort, your own strategies, your own power. And you don't need Jesus, because you have the instructions. I don't need to talk to my wife. I don't need to listen to her. I have the instruction manual. This is what we do to God. As, a, as people who serve in church, when you are busy, when you feel overwhelmed by life, the first thing that goes is praying because it doesn't seem like it's addressing the problems that we're facing. And this is so deadly because in John chapter 15, there's, this is one of the most life-changing passages for me. There's an image where Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches where he says, I am the root system of a fruit tree. And if you wanna bear fruit, you have to abide in me. You have to stand firm in your freedom. You have to remain connected to me personally and interact with me. And you are so vitally connected to Jesus Christ that his life, his love, his character, his desires, his mission, it all flows through you and you bear fruit. But you have to stay connected to him because apart from him, you can do nothing. A branch that is not connected to the root system will never bear fruit no matter how hard it tries and the effort it puts in. All the strategies it puts in will not bear fruit. And in the same way, if we relate to God, if we try to serve God, if we try to 
there's this guy, Jatani book, I know Hannah's read, called With, where he says, we are so busy doing things for God, we forget to do things with God. We forget to stay connected to him and say, I am free to do whatever I want. I don't have to follow and operate based on these principles, but what I should do is remain connected to Jesus. Uh, what does this look like? The difference is, um, <laughs> uh, okay, I'm, I'm preparing a sermon, and I'm not sure how to interpret this verse. So the first thing I do is I go to um, biblesermons.com, and I look up sermon on this passage, and then I copy that one paragraph where the person explains the meaning of the verse. <laughs> or I type it into ChatGPT, like, what does it mean to, like, you know, what does this passage mean? Um, what am I doing there? I'm trying to solve my problem, which is I have to write a sermon, and I'm not involving God whatsoever. Now, I have definitely done this where I talk about God without talking to God. I definitely have done this. I hope that I don't do this much anymore. I probably still have done it, and I'm forgiven for that. I'm free. But what I want to do, and this is what I feel like God's been showing me, is like increasingly, even if I'm stressed out, even if I feel so busy and anxious, that busyness and anxiousness is not coming from God. And instead of being on a religious tightrope where I have to make every step right or else God is displeased with me, instead, I am walking in freedom and on solid ground. I don't have to be afraid of falling or failing or performing because God is, it's, it's God. It's God, he's the one I boast in. Um, and so our uh, elder YC, um, a while back, I would, talk to him, like, I would talk to him about preaching and stuff, and he would all say kind of the same thing. He would all say like, if I ever preach a good sermon, it's by the grace of God. I know how weak I am, I know how bad of a speaker I am. It's just by the grace of God. And before I'm like, oh, you're being falsely humble and whatever it might be. But now, now I kind of get what he's saying, where apart from God, we can do nothing. And all of my efforts will never produce any change in anyone, any real lasting spiritual change. I can control people's behavior from the outside. I can put pressure and guilt trip you. But instead, you are free. What are some of the implications of this freedom? You are free from the box of shame. God will never put you in there. You are free from keeping the law. It says, if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And let me give this illustration from Bible reading. When you read Bibles, when you read your Bible or when you listen to sermons, what typically happens is the preacher will give you a list of applications and you just throw another one on. You throw another weight on your back that you have to live out during the week. And so when you read your Bible in the morning, you wake up in the morning, I gotta do my quiet time. You're throwing a rock on your back, like a 50 pound weight. You're throwing another rock on your back. You read the passage, the passage says you should pray, you think, that you think that's what the passage is saying. It's not saying that. You throw another weight on your back and you're carrying these huge burdens all over the place. And this is why Christianity doesn't feel free to you because it's, it's all of these expectations and burdens and it's pressuring. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm in the freedom. You can let go of that weight, that burden and pressure of pleasing God through what you do. You are absolutely free to do nothing for God. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says, God does not need anything from us. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything from us. So he doesn't need us to do his mission. 
God could do it all on his own. But when you are changed, and when you are free, and you experience the freedom and grace of a love, the love of God who loves you when you didn't do anything to earn it, that motivates you. And it says, I am so grateful for you. You are so good to me. I love the way you make me feel, the worth you give me. You unconditionally love and accept me and died for me, not on the basis of what I did, but because you simply love me. And that absolutely frees you. But then, because you know what God is like and how much he loves you and what he did for you, then you say, you know what, this is actually a better way to live. And so, rather than saying these are commands and burdens, you can say, God is giving us instructions for how to live, and it is out of his love for us that he guides us and he relates to us. It's not a burden. He says, uh, John says, I love this passage, he says, uh, his commandments are not burdensome, which means when you read scripture, it shouldn't feel like one burden after another. Instead, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you're enslaved to anger, scripture is a way that God will set you free if you hear with faith. And so his commandments are freeing, are life-giving, to stay connected to Jesus is everything. But if you accept the law and you relate to God by these principles, you are severing your growth and your life with Jesus Christ. You're cutting yourself off from the source of peace and joy in your life. And you're trading it for slavery. Let's keep going. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Um, what does freedom feel like? He says, through the Spirit, right off the bat, he's saying, if you are free in Christ, you have God's Spirit in you. And the God's Spirit in you, number one, witnesses to you that you are loved by God even when you personally feel like you're worthless. The Spirit is working to convince you how much God loves you. The Holy Spirit makes you feel God's hug for you. But number two, the Holy Spirit is guiding you. The Holy Spirit is growing you. And it's internal. It is organic growth. The same way a plant grows from the inside, the seed grows under the soil, the water comes down, it starts to grow out, but the growth, the power comes from the inside. The branch doesn't create the growth. The root system creates the growth. We don't create the growth. Christ creates the growth. And all we need to do is stay attached to the root system. And then this experience of freedom, it is the spirit, it is by faith. Faith means personal trust. It means believing what God says about us. It means believing his work will be completed and finished. It says, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There is nothing eager or hopeful about legalism and Christian, uh, like Christian legalism. There's nothing hopeful about it. Instead, it's like walking a tightrope, where even if you're really, really good at juggling all the different rules and laws, you, you never know if you're gonna be able to keep doing it. You never know if you're gonna keep on performing to the standard. Instead, you're like walking on the tightrope, you're juggling a bunch of plates, and you've done, it, you've done it for a few years, you know, you've been able to do it for a while, but you never know, what if you slip up? And so you're always afraid of falling, you're always afraid of failing, and you're always convinced that if you do, God will look at you and say, 
eh? And then it'll put you in the box of shame. But that's not freedom. In Christ Jesus, or we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait for the hope of righteousness. That means that when you are saved, your righteousness is a sure thing that Jesus will accomplish in you. And here's the crazy thing. The book of Jonah. Jonah runs away from God with everything that he has in his life. And yet, God chases after him. God seeks him. God counsels him. He has compassion for Jonah, even when Jonah is trying to run away. And he gets his attention through, in a sense, catastrophic life events. And so what I'm saying is, you are absolutely free to run away from God. Um, I wouldn't recommend it uh, because of the book of Jonah and other things. But even if you do, even if you do, it is not on you to save yourself. God is so gracious that he will go after you and he won't give up on you. And so the pressure is not on you to perform. The pressure and, in a sense, the choice you have is will you respond to God's discipline and with acceptance, where you say, God, I've tried it my way, didn't work, it was bondage and slavery, let me try it your way for a while. Let's do an experiment. Is your way actually freeing? In Christ, uh, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Um, legalism can create begrudging compliance where you do what you're supposed to, but you don't want to do it. This is like fam familial obligation in Chinese families. You know you're supposed to do it, but you don't want to do it. You suck it up and you do it. It's begrudging. You're not happy about it, but you do it. You're resentful on the inside, but you do it. Or it creates people who throw off the yoke of God and say, I'm going to run away from you and live the way I want. Both of these things are slavery. Both of these things are related to God on the terms of performance. And what Jesus is saying is you are free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Um, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. When you are free, what is your Christian life about? Um, it's about faith working through love. Uh, we're going to do that next week. Um, so let me go ahead and close by just saying, religion, Christianity, is not enslaving. Why did Jesus die? To set us free. And our tendency is to slide back into slavery, guilt, pressure. If you experience guilt and pressure in your relationship with God, know that that is not coming from him. He looks at you and says, you are righteous because of what Jesus did. Um, one of my favorite hymns, Before the Throne, says, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Don't boast in your works. Don't look to your ability to perform religiously for acceptance before God. Look to Jesus and say, Jesus did it for me. So I can praise him, I can boast in him, I want to stay connected to him because he loves me so much and he actually brings freedom in my life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I praise you that you set us free. I pray you would help us live and stand firm in that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.